I want to read you a dream. This is a dream that Hunter Bankhart had. Hunter is one of our one of our guys. Is Hunter here tonight? He's, he's not. Okay. Uh, so I have his. He probably is one of the ones making right. I have his permission to share this with you. I'm going to read it in its entirety. I will tell you uh, just as a disclaimer ahead of time that this is a dream. It's just a dream that he had. It's very vivid. It's very interesting. And it's very compelling, but yet it is a dream. So let me just read this to you. Hunter writes, he sent it to me in an email. He said, I'm not sure about this dream that I had, and I'm not reading anything into it. I just thought it was an amazing picture of the grace of God. Warning, he says, I'm not an author, and I'm a poor speller, but he does pretty well. Here's what I remember, even though there was a lot more prior to this. The setting was one of peace and tranquility. Imagine a new Bridge Christian Fellowship perched high on the side of a rock cliff, much like one might see on a northeastern coastline or a Norman Rockwell painting. There was a winding gravel road that led to a flat bluff that overlooked a large expanse of ocean. He says he's not a writer. There were no cars, planes, or outside noise other than the wind itself. Becky and I, Hunter's wife, were behind a large mass of well-dressed bridgers. That's the only thing that's faulty about the dream. Walking up the hill together, holding hands toward our new little church. Everyone proceeded with, in an unhurried fashion, arm in arm or hand in hand. The church itself was amazing. It was an old converted farmhouse that had been attached to the old hay barn that sat in close proximity. The entire church was a bright white with very large windows that followed the framing of the roof line. And there were large white barn doors that remained open as the people flowed in. As oncomers peered through the door, they were welcomed with the aroma of fresh flowers and the old wooden pews that seemed to glisten from the sun, basking the newly polished wood. Outside the church was an amazing garden facing toward the rough seas as if to remind us it was okay to remain in peace. Adjacent to the garden was a wonderful lush green grass courtyard where most gathered to chat. Surrounding the courtyard and the garden was a waist-high white picket fence. I remember standing with Becca in the entryway looking out to the sea and watching the boys run the fence line dragging sticks against the white picket boards. He's talking about me. He says, you were preaching or talking, but the sermon seemed as if it had already happened and people were just on their own program. The interesting part was a number of individuals who had gathered outside the picket fence on the gravel road. I could see them whispering to each other, but they all refused to come into the courtyard. Their facial expressions were odd. It appeared they had a look of wonder and curiosity, yet emptiness at the same time. Hard to write down, but here's where it got good. We all heard an amazing crack of thunder from over the ocean. The people on the road ran down the gravel hill toward the docks at the base of the cliff. Most everyone stopped to see the clouds begin to billow over top of one another. I w it was like watching time-lapse photography of clouds passing, except there was an enormous hole forming. The most intense white light shined through, and you could start to see the creatures in the sea. And I remember you screaming, Hallelujah, the rapture! <laughs> Most froze in awe and amazement, including myself, and Hunter writes, here comes grace. The clouds continued to swirl in motions, but didn't move out anymore. And you said, everyone share, head to the people and share, God is allowing more time. I remember everyone began running toward the docks. Kids skipped down the hill and, and women were spinning around in their dresses. The church immediately split into groups at the bottom. And that was the last time I saw Becky. I remember seeing you kneeling with a group of older couples, but I could not hear what you were saying because the wind was picking up. Then I ran up to five black guys. Don't know why I was the only one with these men, but I was. Then I remember saying, Christ is waiting, but there's no time. Who wants to know the Lord right now? Who wants to spend eternity with Him? They dropped to a knee, and I led them through a prayer to accept Christ. 
I turned around to see people starting to be raptured, and some were still praying. Very shortly after I finished with the black guys, we were one by one launched into the air like bottle rockets. Amazing grace because the Lord didn't take everyone at once. He was allowing time for the prayer to finish and thus increase the kingdom. I was flying fast toward the sky, but I could still see you on the point with the ocean. I remember thinking on the way up, if I only could have done more. Well, as I got closer to the heavens, my body was peeling off and melting away. Every instant, as I lost more flesh, I would remember less, and my spirit was replaced with the uncontrollable ability to praise the Lord. Right before I became a spirit body, I looked back with all that I had left, my eyes. Said, I saw you rapture with your group, all holding hands, and the point was empty. You were the last to go, and no one on the point was left behind. An instant later, I was in the brightest, warmest light I could imagine, and there was a sense of total peace. Moments later, I woke up to the sun in my face, and that was it. And he says, my takeaway from this is that God's grace was given even through the last moments of the rapture. And he says, I'm not sure if anything will be like that, but I'm convinced that God wanted, me to, wanted to let me know that even when I create my own dreams, I can't control or imagine his grace. Isn't that awesome? Here's what strikes me about it. It's wonderful, it's fantastic, and it's an amazing dream. It's exciting to think about that. But the thing that impressed me the most wasn't the extra time in this dream that was happening around the rapture. Because honestly, gang, the Bible says, 1 Corinthians 15:52, it will be in the twinkling of an eye. It's not going to be a process where people start to go and there's time to, to shout out and time to grab people and say, pray, receive the Lord. It's going to happen. Jesus said one person's going to be in the field, two people in the field. One's going to be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. It will be an instantaneous moment. But I could just as easily shout out tonight, everyone go share. The Lord is allowing more time. That's what strikes me. And the picture of the Bridge Christian Fellowship in this dream, Hunter seeing everybody race down the hillsides to tell people about Jesus with an absolute sense of urgency. And that's what impressed me about the dream. As I talked to Hunter about it, I said, you know, it was, it was the urgency of it. It was that sense that there is no more time. Share the gospel. Tell people about Jesus. Do it now because now is all the time we have. And we go about our daily lives and so much time passes. And we lose that sense of urgency. Let me just say to you that that's why we're here. That we remain on this earth, growing in our faith, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, not to achieve that ultimate righteousness that will get us saved. Because as I told Spencer a few minutes ago, if he's not going at the rapture, I'm not going, because the only reason I'm going is grace, and the only reason he's going is grace. That's what's going to save us. But we walk on this planet... And we stay here as Christians, as believers in Christ, for one primary purpose, and that is to speak the name of Jesus to people who don't yet know Him. And there is an urgency. Amen. Whether we sense it or not, on a beautiful evening like this, we'll walk out of the bar, we'll head to our home, some to dinner, others to hang out with friends, others back home just, just to relax with our families. And that sense of urgency is still there. Who do we know that doesn't know Jesus? Who can you pick up the phone and call tonight who doesn't know Jesus? Urgency, because this twinkling of an eye could happen before we're even done tonight. And my sense is exactly what Hunter said in his dream, that there will be many of us caught up, and in the moment of being caught up, saying, I could have told one more person. It's like the end of Schindler's List. Remember the scene? 
where Schindler, Arthur Schindler, is about to get in his car and drive away, and, and he's realizing that he bought the freedom of all these Jews. And he looks down and he begins to take off his ring and say that this ring could have been seven more people, that this car could have been ten more people, that this pen, one more person. And the Jews are telling him, you've done enough, you've done so much, you've done so much more. And yet he realized in his brokenness he could have saved more. And that's the urgency. There are always more people we can tell about Jesus. There are always more who need to be saved. Now Jesus gives us some amazing indications as to how he'll return. If you'll put your finger in Revelation 20 and go back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is one of the most important chapters prophetically in Scripture. It's where Jesus does lay out what's happening or what will happen in the time of the end. That's a chapter that in and of itself will be a fantastic study. Maybe we'll do it one of these nights. But Matthew 24, verse 21 Jesus begins speaking, and he's speaking about the tribulation. He says, For there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. How do we know the tribulation has not happened yet? Because we've seen things like the Holocaust. And we've seen the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. And we know historically horrible things have happened. And yet, Jesus says, there's going to be a tribulation so great that nothing like it has ever occurred, nor will ever occur afterwards. There are those preterists, we've talked about this, who believe that this tribulation Jesus was talking about happened in A.D. 70, and yet the Holocaust was worse. So right there, historically, we know it couldn't have been A.D. 70 that he was referring to. No, this is a great tribulation that is unlike anything that's ever been seen. We've studied it, chapter 6 through 19 in Revelation. We just finished that. Well, verse 22, Jesus went on, he said, Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Let me point out, some people say it says the elect there, therefore, doesn't that mean Christians will be in the tribulation? It doesn't, because the elect also refers to Israel. So for the sake of Israel, for the sake of God's elect, His chosen people, those days will be cut short. Verse 23, Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe Him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. Now watch this. Verse 26. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness. Do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe them. And here's an interesting verse. I want you to focus in on verse 27. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now this speaks of that time, that tribulation period, after the saints, after the church has already been caught up, after we have been raptured. And just a few minutes ago, talking about this, you know, the whole theology of the rapture, and what the Bible teaches about the church being caught up, I see it as the most clear and most biblical option that we have. Now if I'm wrong about that, I'm wrong about that, and it's going to drive me right back to Scripture. If we see certain things happen in world events that shouldn't happen with the church here, it will cause me to stop and go, okay, I missed something. But I can't even imagine that happening because as we've talked about a literal interpretation of Scripture yields one possibility. And that's the church will not be here. You have not been destined for wrath but for salvation, Paul said, in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the church is not here at this time. But verses 27 and 28 give us an interesting 
picture, Jesus says several things that we can draw just out of these two verses about his actual return. That return, that glorious appearing we talked about last week in chapter 19. Verse 27 again, he says, Just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures, vultures will gather. Some of your translations may say eagles. I'll address that in just a second. But listen to this. Jesus tells us this about his return. Number one, he says it will be as the lightning flashes. How quick is a flash of lightning? How often have you been watching a storm and suddenly the lightning flashes and you barely even see it? In fact, what a lot of times we see is the trace of the lightning that's still glowing in the sky. The lightning itself is so quick. That's how the coming of the Lord will be. That's how his glorious appearing when he comes back to earth. It will be so sudden, so quick. It will happen very fast as the lightning flashes. He also says as the lightning flashes from the east. And I believe there's something to this. And I believe this because the rest of the scriptures point to this as as well. That he will come from the east. Zechariah tells us the place where where he will set foot is on the Mount of Olives. To the east of Jerusalem. That he will enter in through the eastern gate. As we read Psalm 24, 7 in the song we sing. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up... Your, what is it? Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift up your... Be lifted up. Thank you. O ancient doors, and the king will come in. Speaking of that eastern gate of the Temple Mount, that he will come in from the east. As lightning flashes from the east, even to the west. Well, what does that mean? It means his coming is going to be seen from east to west, worldwide. As fast as it will be. And the fact that he comes in the east or from the east, everybody in the entire world will simultaneously see his glorious appearing. This is not an event that will be missed. There's not going to be someone on the far side of the world unaware of it until days later. Everybody will know the moment that it happens from the east all the way to the west. But then he says this curious and and stumping statement. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The Greek word here is aetos. A-E-T-O-S. Vultures. It's also translated eagles. And as my friend Andrew Campbell who is from South Africa loves to remind me a vulture is nothing, or an eagle is nothing more than a vulture anyway. He's got an anti-American eagle thing, but he'll get over that someday. I still think they're majestic birds, but they are vultures. They function like vultures do. So the word works for either one, either eagles or vultures. And what does this mean? A couple of possibilities just to consider before we get back to chapter 20. If it's truly eagles, if it's eagles... But where the corpses are there, the eagles will gather. It may be an indication of the gathering of the saints. That is, you and me, along with Jesus, at the end of Armageddon, where the corpses are. There the eagles will gather. Why would it be the saints? Because Isaiah says in Isaiah 41, those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. So Jesus may be alluding to the fact that in his glorious appearing, In that second coming, that when he comes back and there is that mass, and we saw it last week, we read about it, that mass slaughter at the end of chapter 19, of all those who are in rebellion, there at Armageddon, the corpses will be everywhere and there the eagles gather, it may be an indication of the saints gathering. But I think there's a more likely likely answer to this and what this means. And again, we saw it last week. Turn back to Revelation chapter 19 and look at verse 17. Considering this verse, considering this verse where Jesus says, wherever the corpses are, there the eagles or the vultures will gather. If it's vultures, watch this, Revelation 19, verse 17, 
Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds who fly in mid-heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. Down in verse 21, it ends up saying, The rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Truly, where the corpses are, there the vultures will gather. This is the last statement of Jesus as he traces or talks about the tribulation period there in Matthew 24. Where the vultures are, where the corpses are, the vultures will gather. And I think personally that it's a direct correlation to the end of Revelation 19. That that's what he's talking about right there. Well, what happens after that? What happens after that? This brings us now tonight into that great period of time that we have known of and talked about as the Millennium or the Millennial Kingdom and it's spoken of numerous times throughout the Old Testament especially the Kingdom the promised Kingdom of God the coming Kingdom spoken about over and over now you might say okay Rick but I happen to know something that the word Millennium is not used a single time in the Scriptures so how can it really be legitimate well the word Bible isn't used in the Scriptures either and yet we have it other words not used in the scriptures. How about Trinity? You won't see a single mention of the word Trinity in even the original Greek. And yet, do we see the Trinity in the scriptures? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What did Jesus say in Matthew 20, 28? He said, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Trinity, right there. At Jesus' baptism, when he comes up out of the water, we see the Son in the water, the dove descending, at the Holy Spirit as a dove, and the Father speaking. Father, Holy Spirit, Son, all in the same picture. Over and over we see the Trinity, though the word is not used. How about the word rapture? Now you know that word is not in the Bible. And I've actually had conversations with people who disagree with me on, on the perspective of the rapture. And they say, I don't even see the word in Scripture. Where is it? And I say it's right there in 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. The phrase is caught up in the Latin raptus, in the Greek harpazo. You all know that by now. That the rapture is in Scripture, whether or not the word is. And so though you won't see the word millennium, you will see the phrase a thousand years. Where we get the word millennium is simply from the Latin words mille, which means a thousand, and annus, which means year, a thousand years. And in chapter 20, it's important to note this, and I haven't just circled every time, in chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, this phrase, thousand years, is used six times. Not once, it's not brushed by and alluded to or hinted at, a thousand years as a literal frame of time is used six times throughout this chapter. The Greek word for it is chilioi, chilioi, or kilioi, depending on how you pronounce that ch. Our early church fathers, men like Irenaeus among them, even called themselves chialis, not chiapets, that came later, chialis. A chilis was simply someone who absolutely maintained and believed that there would be a literal thousand year reign of Christ on earth following the tribulation. A chilist. Now, people may ask you, and you may have considered this, the question, are you premillennial, amillennial, or postmillennial? And some Christian friends of mine enjoy saying that this question, uh, that they answer it by saying, well, I'm pro-millennial. I don't care when or how or whatever. That doesn't matter to me. So I, I'm pro whatever God wants to do, and that's good enough for me. And they will sit oftentimes in the dark, 
not understanding the things that the Lord has written down for us. Remember, it's the book of Revelation. There's a reason why God put it in the Bible. There's a reason why the Bible ends with revelation, things being revealed, because he wants us to know. It does matter. It is important. People will say, why? I mean, does it really matter? As long as I believe Jesus is coming, does it matter what I think about his coming? So long as I just believe that he is. Jesus thought it mattered. Jesus taught about it, talked about it. He taught constantly on the kingdom, and at one point he even said to his apostles, Luke 22, 28, You are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Does that sound spiritual and, and allegorical to you? I mean, it's awfully specific. And if the scriptures are spiritual and allegorical about this kingdom, if it's just kind of a generic sense of a, of a spiritual state, then Jesus really misled a lot of us in being as specific as he was. You will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel, Jesus said to his, his apostles. Matthew 6.10, Jesus prayed, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done. Where? Where? On earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed for the coming kingdom on earth. And Matthew 16, 28, he said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Who was he talking to at the point? Peter, James, and John. All three who have died and haven't seen the Son of Man coming in his kingdom except for one. John saw Jesus coming in his kingdom. He wrote about it in Revelation 19 and 20. He saw it. Jesus' promise was absolutely true. Yes, there will be one of you standing here who will see me coming in my kingdom. And John was afforded that fantastic, wonderful revelation. And he wrote it down for us. And so Revelation chapter 20 then is that great chapter in the Bible penned by John, witnessed by him which reveals both the thousand year reign of Christ, that kingdom reign here on earth, and and it reveals the final judgment day of mankind. And they're both misunderstood, but they are both crystal clear in this chapter. Now as we begin, I know we haven't even gotten to verse 1 yet, we'll get there. But I want to give you three primary schools of eschatology regarding the millennial kingdom. Eschatology is just study of the end times. So three primary schools of thought, you've probably heard all three, in fact I mentioned them a moment ago, post-millennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism, and I believe it does matter that you understand the difference between them and, and what, what they really mean. Let me explain these quickly here. Post-millennialism. Post-millennialism assumes that Jesus will come post, after a thousand years of perfect peace and prosperity on earth that has been achieved by the church. This began to gain popularity around the 3rd and 4th century when suddenly the church, in league with Rome, began to be a great kingdom, began to spread out. And, and Christians started saying, well, things are going so well, perhaps this is the deal. We are going to usher into the kingdom and then Jesus will come. That's post-millennialism. It was not taught, it was not believed in the early church, the 1st century, the 2nd century. We don't even see any trace of this until the 3rd or 4th century when suddenly life was better for the church. Post-millennialism says that the church is going to reign in this peace and prosperity on earth. And after we achieve that, 
then Jesus will come back and we'll hand him the keys of, keys of the kingdom as something that we ourselves achieved. It assumes the church will usher in the kingdom of God. It assumes, by the way, that the heart of man is good and capable of achieving perfect peace. Post-millennialism assumes too much. In fact, the post-millennial view is all but abandoned by thinking believers in light of reality today. All you have to do is look around. Are we ushering in world peace? We've been here 2,000 years since the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. How have we done? How does the world look today versus 2,000 years ago? Have we even had two years of perfect peace and prosperity in the world brought about by the church? We haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it. That's post-millennialism. And I pretty much take that one and we just discard it out, outright because history itself proves otherwise. The second one is amillennialism. And there are quite a few people in Christianity today, today who absolutely believe this. Amillennialism, as it sounds, assumes ah millennial. There is no millennial kingdom. There is no literal millennium. millennium. It's just a spiritual kind of thing that Jesus ushered in before he ascended. That the church entered into this millennial spiritual kingdom, this generic thing. It's, it's, it's the church today. Amillennialism believes that the millennium is kind of the church today. That that thousand year reign is allegorical. It's spiritual. And they argue that Revelation 20 is the only chapter in the Bible that specifically mentions a precise thousand year reign of the kingdom. And therefore, maybe it's spurious. That's, that's, you have to be careful about saying, hey, it's only mentioned in this chapter in the Bible. My response to that is, if it's mentioned in the Bible, pay attention to it. Amen. It doesn't have to be there more than once to get my attention. And yet, in this chapter, as we've seen and we will see, it's mentioned six different times. Now, Revelation 20 gives it the specific time frame of a thousand years. But it's not the only chapter in Scripture referring to Jesus' promised Messianic reign. In fact, you see it all throughout the Old Testament. The reason why the Jewish people, many of them, missed Jesus the first time is they were looking for his coming the second time. They were looking for and prepared for that kingdom reign that he promised, that the Old Testament prophets promised. And when he didn't usher in that kingdom, they were confused. They didn't understand that first the Christ must come and suffer and die for our sins, and then he could come back and usher in his kingdom. Amillennialism. It tries to squeeze the thousand-year reign into the present church age and say, this is the millennial kingdom. Amillennialism does not hold up, again, under the weight of history and under the weight of scripture. We come to the third, and I believe correct, position. And gang, again, I, I don't want to be dogmatic, and yet when something is so backed up biblically by a literal uh, study of the word, I have to go there. So premillennialism assumes consistently that Revelation 20 is, along with all of scripture, literal. That it says what it means, and it means what it says, and the Bible says that Jesus will come back and reign for a thousand years. That's the deal. That's what's going to happen. It assumes or applies the literal method of interpretation unless the biblical context indicates otherwise. We've talked about that. Throughout our Revelation study, there are times where John will give a picture or an allegory or a symbol, but he will turn right around and explain to us that this was a picture or an allegory or a symbol. He always lets us know. We're never hanging out there going, I wonder if that was supposed to be real. 
Or that was just a picture. John always says that. For example, Revelation 19.15 tells us from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. Well, we understand in the context of all of Scripture, what is the sword? It's the Word. It's the Word. Which means when Jesus comes back riding into, into the world again in his glorious appearing, he will speak a word and wipe everybody out. There's the power of God right there. The glory of his appearing. He will speak the word. But premillennialism forces a biblical reason for any interpretation that is not literal. It forces us to go back to the Bible and say, okay, if I'm interpreting this this way, there has to be a biblical reason for it. Premillennialism does that. Now, over a century ago, premillennialists were called pessimistic. Because they believed the Bible predicted the word that the world would decline in depravity and even that apostasy would be seen seeping into the church. Do we see that today? So what was pessimistic a century ago is very much reality in the world in which we live. Premillennialism assumes, as Revelation 20 declares, there can be no lasting peace, no kingdom come, unless and until Jesus Christ himself brings it. Pre-millennial, Jesus will return before the millennium and reign through that thousand years. That's premillennialism. By the way, of these three approaches, premillennialism is also the most Jewish of the three, which I find interesting. Charles Feinberg, in his excellent book that's just called Millennialism, and if you're, if you're interested in picking up extra studies like this, uh, Millennialism, the book by Feinberg, uh, can be purchased at friendsofisrael.org, uh, foi.org. Go there and they've got all kinds of great books there. Millennialism by Feinberg. He says the following. He says, there are those who contend that premillennialism is merely an inheritance from ancient Judaism with its apocalyptic literature that unfortunately found its way into the early church and that explains the Judaistic features of millennialism or premillennialism. That it was just a holdover from old Jewish belief because the first century church was so heavily Jewish that that's where this position came from. And that's right on. That's absolutely true. As the Jewish element of the early church was eventually replaced by a more Gentile element over the centuries, the study of these Old Testament kingdom scriptures began to be applied not to Israel, but to the church as opposed to Israel. And this idea of Chialism seemed to all but disappear from biblical theology for literally over a thousand years. When we teach, when we look at and study Revelation and tonight apply this theology of premillennialism, literally for a thousand years in the church, it was rarely taught. Most people didn't believe it. Why? Because things were going well for the church, at least for the church in control, for the church based out of Rome. When they had the power and the authority and all the grandeur, that they truly believed that they were ushering in that kingdom. And so why talk about a kingdom coming after Christ? We're working on it right now. And yet now, we see different. We see things have changed a bit. It's interesting to me that this whole idea of premillennial thought, it re-emerged as a teaching of interest, as a biblically accurate approach, and even a historically legitimate approach in the late 1800s. Now, get this down, because some people will say, well, this wasn't even, this wasn't even believed or talked about in, until the 1800s. Not so. Not so. It was literally believed and talked about, and we had historical evidence for it, in the first century and the second century, all the way up to the third century, before the church married Rome. 
This was the primary school of thought. And how do we know that? Well, even biblically, look at the writings of John and of Paul and of Peter who were expecting this kingdom return of Jesus in the first century. And I mentioned Irenaeus before. He was one of the early church fathers. We have writings of Irenaeus where he's talking about premillennialism. Where he was teaching that. That was understood and believed until later in the church. But then it went dormant for a while, and in the 1800s, a man by the name of John Nelson Darby, among others, began to say, hey, wait a minute. What about this view? What about the idea that maybe the Bible really is literal on this account? Maybe Jesus himself will have to come back in this messed up world. Maybe he's going to have to return, and then after his return, he will reign for a thousand years. I mean, after all, that's what it says, isn't it? And instead of trying to apply Scripture and change it to fit history, he said, what if we just take Scripture at face value and believe it for what it says? Now, why would this begin stirring in the late 1800s? Something else was stirring in the late 1800s. Zionism. The desire among the Jewish people, stronger than an event for centuries, to return to Israel. A thing called the Jewish National Fund was started up, still in existence today, where money was being collected by rich Jews all throughout the world to buy up property in Israel. Now there has always been, since the Jews were there in the early days, there has always been a Jewish presence in the country. And if you go there, well, if it's still there, it'll be there. But if we go there, whether it's by plane or, or following the Lord back in, in less than a year or so, you will see some of the towns where there has been a Jewish presence for the last 2,000 years. They had never been absent from the, from the country. But they began to buy up plots of land. And Zionism began to get this surge of growth and this desire among the Jewish people to go back to Israel. As if they were being called back to the land. Which is exactly what scriptures told us would happen. That first there would be a, a secular return to the land among the Jews. We've, we've seen that happen in mass droves. And that was happening at the same time that suddenly Christians were beginning to wake up again and say, hmm, maybe there's something to this kingdom coming after Jesus returns. Maybe Jesus is the one who is going to make it all happen. Now listen, one, one last note on premillennial theology, and we'll actually get open up to verse 1 here. Premillennial theology assumes a literal binding and removal of Satan. In other words, there can be no millennial kingdom until Satan is removed from the earth. You'll see this in chapter 20, right at the beginning. Satan has to be removed, according to scripture, for the millennial kingdom to be set in place. If we are already post-millennial, then Satan right now would be powerless, right? If we were in the kingdom as amillennial, the amillennial view teaches, if we were currently in kind of a spiritual kingdom right now, Satan would be powerless, wouldn't he? So I ask you a very simple question. Has Satan been removed from planet Earth or not? Does anybody believe that we live in a world where Satan has no authority, no ability to work his demonic activity? That alone shuts the door on every other possible eschatological view but premillennialism because premillennialism teaches Satan must be removed from planet Earth. Peter said it, 1 Peter 5.8, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Gang, if as Peter purports, Satan is on the prowl, then Satan is not bound. And if Satan is not bound, we are not in the kingdom. And it's as simple as that. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Watch this. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a great chain was in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. That's the first time uh, Chilioi is mentioned, a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until, second time, the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. There's an awful lot just in these first three verses. Satan, by the way, who is now going to be shut up. I like that. In fact, in the King James Version, it literally says that he is shut up. You know, shut up. (laughs) But Satan, who is shut up and, and sealed at this point, isn't that exactly what he tried to do to Jesus? He tried to have Jesus shut up in a tomb, didn't he? He tried to see to it that that tomb would be sealed. That tomb was sealed, by the way, with the seal of Rome. Didn't work to keep him in, did it? It didn't hold Jesus down. And here we see Satan shut up in a different kind of holding cell. He is not, by the way, cast into hell. Can you hear me okay as those flames are playing? Maybe the difficult or You want to close? Yeah, go ahead and close that, Rod. It's a little distracting. Call the base game, will you? Got freedom. <laughs> now, this is important to note because Satan is going to come back at the end of the thousand year reign. Why? We'll talk about it in a minute. But it's important to note that when he is bound up, he is not cast into hell. He is not cast into the lake of fire. He is cast into the abyss where he is bound and he is sealed and he is held there for that thousand years. The abyss. The abyss is not hell. The abyss, as Scripture tells us very clearly, is a holding tank. It's a place for the incarceration of demons. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, remember the story of the Gerasene demoniac and how he was, he was uh, possessed by a legion of demons. And that legion of demons implored Jesus and said, Please, don't send us into the abyss. Whatever you do, don't send us into the abyss. Don't do, send us into the pigs. We had the Bay of Pigs and all that, and you've heard me talk about that. Luke 8.31, he says, they implored him not to command him to go into the abyss. Why? Hell, then listen, hell will be worse. The demons are scared to death of the abyss. It's so bad. Hell will be worse. Worse than the abyss. And again, the King James translation of this verse, verse 3, he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. What's great about that is finally the adversary, the accuser of the brethren, who the Bible tells us stands day and night accusing us. This is what Satan's doing even right now. He's accusing us. But at this point, he's shut up. He is unable to accuse. He is unable to deceive. He is silenced. He's put into the abyss, and that'll shut him up. Amen. That will be a good day. Now, notice who it is that grabs a hold of Satan. For those who think that there's kind of a yin-yang in, in theology, there's a, as much as there's a good side, there's a bad side. You know, there's the light side of the force and the dark side of the force. Thank you, George Lucas. All of that's bogus. There's not a strength equal to God, equally evil as, as God is good. 
There's not. There's just degrees of people away from God. God is perfect, good, perfect light, and that everything is just degrees away from Him. And Satan's about as far as far away as you can get. But he is not powerful as the Lord is powerful. And so it's not even God here. I love this. God's not even the one who lays a hand on him. It's an angel. Now I've said before, it, it, it's possible it could be Michael, but that's just completely surmised. It might not even be Michael. It could be just some little angel who, you know, has just come out of training. You know, it just barely got his wings. Because it doesn't take much. As a matter of fact, notice that this little angel who comes out here only uses one hand. So he grabs Satan, he has in one hand, he's got the chain, with the, holding the key of the abyss and the great chain in one hand, and he lays hold of Satan with the other hand, so he only needs one hand to do it. Satan's not all powerful, gang. In fact, he is not as powerful as often we give him credit for. What's the point? When your life is hid in Christ Jesus, you've got nothing to fear from Satan. So let's not fear him. And let's not fear the demonic activity that rages around us, that we know is around. That yes, we pray against, and yes, we fight against. Our fight is not with flesh and blood, but against the powers. Hey, we are on the side of Jesus Christ. Do not be discouraged, dismayed, or afraid of the demonic. <laughs> We've got Jesus. And if he be for us, who can possibly be against us? Amen. Now don't ignore the reality of Satan or his demonic hordes, but don't give him more power than he actually has. One angel, one-handed, with one hand tied behind his back. Grabs Satan, throws him into the abyss. He is bound for a thousand years, and the earth is literally devil free. Which brings us to a question of this thousand year reign. Who is it that will be living in, on earth in that millennial kingdom during that thousand years in the flesh? And this is something, Christians, we need to understand. Where is the church at this point? The church is raptured, but there's a remnant of Jews that, that left. That's right. There's a remnant of Jews. The church, pay attention to this, is not here. What happens when a person is raptured? Paul tells us, 1 Corinthians 15, you can go back and read this. He says that the perishable puts on the imperishable. In an instant, we are changed. At the moment of the rapture, and get this down, because I was asked this question as recently as a week ago. At the moment of the rapture, we are given our glorified eternal bodies, and that is it for us. From that point on, we are eternal. We are with Jesus. We are not going to turn around and blow it again. We are now in our eternal state with the Lord before the millennial kingdom begins. We don't go into the millennium in flesh. We rule and reign with Jesus, as we will see here in just a minute. I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. But here, here specifically is who is in the flesh. Spencer just told us the remnant of Israel, the first group of people. Jeremiah calls the tribulation, by the way, the time of Jacob's trouble. Why is it Jacob's trouble? Because the Jews go through it. The tribulation is primarily to wake up the Jews, to get their attention once again. And so that remnant, that remnant will go in to the millennium, in the flesh. Those who survive, human beings, Jewish. But we also know that only a third of Jews alive on planet Earth, when that tribulation period begins, will make it through. Two-thirds will be wiped out. How do we know that? Zechariah 13, verse 8. It will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish. All the land, the land being Israel. The third will be left in it, 
And I, the Lord says, will bring the third part through the fire. Refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. Which name is it that they will call on? It's the name of Jesus Christ by whom we are saved. The only name given among men by which we must be saved. They'll call on my name, I'll answer them, and I will say they are my people, and they will say the Lord is my God. So the first group that will be ushered into that millennial kingdom in the flesh as human beings will be the remnant of Israel. Second group. Second group that will also, I believe, be ushered into the kingdom, the redeemed tribulation survivors. If there are any, and it's possible, and this is... We can't know for sure because the Bible is not explicit on this. If there are any who come to faith in Jesus during the tribulation who survive the tribulation, they too would be ushered into the kingdom along with the remnant of Israel. These are the ones, by the way, who believe in Jesus and they do something else. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25. Not only do these redeemed tribulation survivors stand by Jesus, believe in Jesus and find their salvation there, but there's something else they do that is absolutely critical. Matthew 25, verse 31. Jesus tells a parable that has often been applied to the church and it is misapplied. This parable is directly related to those who go through the tribulation. Watch this. It's talking about judgment. By the way, when does your judgment happen? Christians. At the cross. It's already happened. Your judgment day was 2,000 years ago. Praise the Lord. Watch this. Matthew 25:31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations, all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the Lord will answer him, Lord. The righteous, sorry, the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? Now listen, this has been applied over the years to Christians to motivate us to get out and serve people. You've probably heard it used in sermons to that effect. Hey, when you serve anybody, it's just like you're serving Jesus. That's true, but that is not what this is talking about. How do you know that? Watch. The king will answer and say, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Who are Jesus' brothers? Immediately speaking, physically speaking on the earth. Jews. As you do this to these brothers of mine. Now here's how we know and understand that this parable is relating to those who are in judgment following the tribulation. Jesus is making this judgment based on how people live during the tribulation period. It's applied to Gentiles, to the nations that are gathered together. And in that judgment, at that moment, he, he separates those who stood with Israel and those who did not. Those who cared for Israel, cared about Israel, and those who did not. It is a, a parable of judgment. And the reason, the main reason why we understand this is not a parable applied to you and I 
It's because, again, our judgment happened at the cross. People will use this, and they will use it for works-based Christianity. You have to do these things, because if you don't do these things, you will not be saved. And that runs counter to the doctrine of grace that is clearly taught in the Bible. You are not saved by giving someone a cup of water, by visiting someone in a prison, or by clothing the naked. That is not what saves you. That is a natural outgrowth of being saved. And truly, if we are saved by the grace of Jesus, we will be engaging in service to those around us. We will be, as Jesus said, among those who serve. But it's not what saves us, and it is not what we will be judged by. However, those who go through the tribulation period will be, the nations will be judged by whether or not they stand by Israel. It is not by works that they're saved, but it is by works that they are divided, sheep and goats. It's by works along with their faith in Jesus. Did they stand by Israel? At least according to this parable. Read on a little bit further. Verse 41, he says, To those on his left he'll say, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. A stranger, you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, put this in context of Matthew 25. Matthew 24, he's just talked about the tribulation, the glorious appearing, the rapture. He's covered all those things. And then in chapter 25, he goes into these parables. And these parables, when understood in light of Israel, make a whole lot more sense and are much more meaningful for us. I believe that the correct placing of the parable of the sheep and the goats is at the beginning of the millennium following the tribulation period. The remnant and the redeemed are ushered into the kingdom. Now you might say, okay... So it's the one-third of the population of Jews. And it's those, if any, who actually survive. And we also know that the tribulation saints are pretty much wiped out. When we see all of the martyrdom that will happen, and we're told that if they don't take the mark of the beast, they're going to lose their heads for it. They will be beheaded for it. We talked about that earlier on in our study of the tribulation. So it's possible that there's not a single living believer in Jesus at the end of the tribulation. So that would mean that the only people who actually are ushered into the kingdom at the very beginning are Jews. Which makes sense because the kingdom was promised to the Jews. The whole point of the millennium is it fulfills the prophecy of promise to the Jewish people, to Israel. I will make an everlasting kingdom on David's throne, the Lord says in the Old Testament scriptures.